from the book of 2 Corinthians. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I'll admit this is one of my favorite texts because it dives into this idea of what does it mean to be transformed by God? You know, when I was in an uh, introductory class in college, we had this thought experiment that I imagine is pretty common. I've heard it's also used in interviews and other places. And the professor asked each of us who we imagined ourselves to be in five years. Have you heard that one before? And I'll confess, as an 18-year-old, I pretty much tuned out after that point because what did I know? And what did I care? You know, I, had, you know, I found out that the surf was good the next day, so I had to get ready for that, and it was a shindig that night, so I had, I had my priorities in line. But as I got older, I began to appreciate the question, and more importantly, its underlying implications. Because here's the deal, even though you and I don't know who we're going to be in five years, there's this idea implicit in the question, and I want you to stay with me on this, that there is a future self that does not exist. It's unrealized. You can't taste it, touch it, smell it, feel it. can't be observed or measured. But it's, a, it's real enough that you can see it in others. That's what you're saying when you look at someone and you say they have potential, right? You see something that is real in them doesn't exist anywhere, but it's real. It's real enough even that the loss of that person can cause you to grieve. Have you ever looked at somebody and said, he had so much potential? Well, what are you grieving? Nothing that exists, nothing that's real. But this is the fascinating thing about being a, a human, being created in God's image. We, of all of God's creatures, we alone Think of ourselves not merely as beings, but as becomings. There's an element to us that looks at where are we growing and what are we turning into. And it's very real to us, and it shapes us, it molds us, it changes us. But the question then is, who are we becoming? And how does that transformation occur? How do people change? Well, i got only two points for us today from this text. Two points. The first one is, the aim of transformation, and point two is the means of transportation. Where are we going and how do we get there? The aims of transportation, the means of tra transformation. Uh, this past week, I think it was uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, we, um, we held the, the uh, Bishop's Search Discernment meeting at our parish hall. Was anyone here there? I know a few of you were. And um, one of the questions that Father Chris was asking as chair of the search committee was, you know, what is, our, what is our diocesan priority for the next 10 years, right? Where are we going? What's it going to look like? What's our priority? And without missing a beat, one of our parishioners raised his hand, and forgive me, sir, but you are an elderly gentleman, and he raised his hand and he said, my priority is to be alive. I, I, thought, I thought it was hilarious, right? Fair enough, right? Different stages of life, different priorities, different goals. I'm going to hear about that later. But the point is, no matter what stage of life we are in, we're changing, knowingly or unknowingly, intentionally or unintentionally. And the fundamental question is, into what? 
What is our trajectory? You know, and, and typically, we have these, you know, these unintentional changes, right? The ones that happen unknowingly. Like, I've been finding out recently that I'm a cranky person for a 35-year-old. Didn't intend that. Wasn't my direction, right? Not where I was going. So, so sometimes things just kind of happen. But then we also have intentional changes, right? You ever go through those periods of time where I want to become this? I want this for my life. And those intentional moments of change are, I want to be wiser me, healthier me, less anxious me, financially secure me, happier me, right? Anybody recognize those me's? And those are great, right? Those are good goals. But the reality is, you don't need God for that. You need a trainer, physical trainer, right? Peloton. You need a therapist. You need a financial planner. And in fact, I ran into a former parishioner a couple years ago, and I hadn't seen this person in a while. And what always happens, by the way, if we, if we haven't seen you in a while and you come up to us, the first thing that you're going to say, and I get it, I've seen it happen hundreds of times, you're going to say, well, the reason I haven't been in church is, that's the introduction. It's like, it's okay, love you, you know, come to church, but that's all right. Um, and, and after he did that, you know, our, our common introduction, he explained to me that, well, on Sunday morning, what my wife and I do is we actually do trans, transcendental meditation instead. You guys remember TM? We do transcendental meditation because you know, we have a lot of anxiety, and that really kind of helps us manage and work through our anxiety. And I'll be honest, in the moment, I was caught off guard, right? What, I was caught completely flat-footed. What do you say to that? And, you know, and then I get in the car, and I'm driving away, and I think of 14 different things that have been really, really godly and, and, and gospel-centered that I could have said. You guys do that, right? What I should have said. And what I should have said, if I had been prepared, is I would have challenged him a bit, and I would have said, you know, I would have asked him, you know, is that enough, though? Is that enough? Is a life free from anxiety enough for you? And so let me ask all of us, like, is a life of health, wealth, peace, respectability, is that enough? I mean, it sounds like a good life, but is that all that God created you for? Is that the upper limit of your potential? That's it. That's what life can be. That's as good as it gets. Or did he make you and I for more than that? You know, the church fathers picked up on this. And they picked up pretty early on that, you know, Jesus didn't come down, you know, God didn't become man and die on the cross for us to just make us better versions of ourselves. That wasn't a good enough reason. In fact, St. Athanasius wrote, he said, the Son of God became man so that we might become God. That is, not that we would become capital G God, right? But that we might be made ontologically, fundamentally changed into different beings than we were at birth. We'll never be of the same substance of the God because we're mere creatures, but we can become the type of people that can act as His vessel, that can act as a vessel for the Holy Spirit, that can take on and imbue His properties, His properties, and reflect them to the world. We can become like God. To explain this, this is an image we've used before, but to explain this, the church fathers would use this image of a blacksmith's crucible. You know what that is, right? A crucible? I tried to draw it in adult form, and I have no idea what it looks like, but I know what it does. Right? It's fire. It's hot, flaming fire. And what a blacksmith would do is you would take iron, and you put it over the fire, and you would heat it up so that you could, you could mold it, become malleable, right? You could get it into shape. 
And that's what the church fathers said about us becoming like God. They say, you know, we can't, you know, the, the metal, when it comes out, it is, it is imbued with the properties of light and of heat, right? It's got the properties of fire. Now, is it fire? It's not, but it can hold on to the characteristics of it. And that's what Paul means in the same book, 2 Corinthians, in chapter 5, two chapters later. He says, and he's so excited about it when he's talking to Christians to remind them, he says, for those of you who are in Christ, new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are of a different essence. You're no longer people of wood that will melt or burn. You're people of iron. Now, how's that for a goal, for a life ambition? For what do I want to look like in five years? How is that for something that is worthy of the people that God has made us to be? To be a living temple of the Holy Spirit, to be a walking tabernacle, to have the God who created the entire universe with a word work out his power through you and to be changed into his likeness. That's crazy. I mean, if you don't think that that's crazy, if you don't think that what I'm saying is absolutely bonkers, then you're not hearing what I'm suggesting. So let me break it down, because this is, this is radical stuff. What I'm saying is, contrary to our culture, I'm suggesting that becoming the most authentic, self-expressive version of yourself is not the goal. It's to become more like Him. What I'm also saying is, what I'm suggesting is that we can, in this life, be transformed to be more like Christ. It's audacious. It's an audacious claim. So if that's the goal, right, if that's the aim, if that's what we're looking for, well, how in the world does that happen? How do we get there? Well, it brings us to our second point, the means of transformation. All right, I want to, I want to touch on our text in 2 Corinthians, because what Paul does is he, he he, he demonstrates exactly how we can engage in this transformation. I mean, he's telling the church in Corinth about their unique advantage of Christians being shaped by God. This is what he says. He says, you know, and we heard in our text this morning, our first reading in Exodus, he says, you know, when Moses first brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai and his face was shining with God's glory, the people couldn't receive it. They couldn't receive the life-changing experience of God. Their minds were hardened. They were terrified. And so to protect them, Moses had to wear a veil. They weren't prepared to encounter God. So, when Mo so Moses wore a veil, and then later built a tabernacle to house the glory of God and protect them from God, and then later built a temple with a five-inch thick curtain surrounding and protecting people from the glory of God. And the sad irony of this whole story, of course, is that what was protecting them from God was also keeping them from being transformed. And I wonder, as I think about this, if you and I are so different. You know, you and I have rebellious hearts. We're a lot more like sheep than we'd like to admit. And if left to our own devices, we wander off and get stuck in all sorts of things. I mean, and some of that's rebelliousness, right? And some of that's fear of exposure, fear of being vulnerable, fear of being just laid out there before the eyes of the Lord. But the further we wander away from God, the further we get from the one that can heal us, that can change us. The more we sin, the more we like to stay in the dark. Well, the dark's not going to heal us, not going to change us or transform us. Only the light can do that. 
But the plight of our condition, the plight of our hearts, is that we often avoid God when we need him the most. And this was the issue with the Israelites that Paul's writing about. He's like, you know, these guys, they had a veil over their hearts. They had a wall of separation between them and God. And that wall of separation went all the way down to the depths of who they were, to who they were, to their core. As part of my, um, as part of my studies that I'm doing for um, a uh, degree in, in mental health counseling, one of the things that we do is we watch counseling sessions. Have you ever seen one of those? Like, like, like maybe on TV or something like that? We watch couples counseling sessions. And there was this one session that I watched that really stuck with me. It was with this couple. Um, her name was Sandra. His name was Keith. And they're sitting on a couch together. And it was a particularly tough session to watch because Sandra, uh, Sandra this entire time, she has been tough as iron. She's been, I'm going to do it myself. I don't need anyone else. I've got this. And at this point in the session, she's kind of realized that that's where she's at. And, she, and she's in tears because she's learned that, you know, what keeps her husband Keith at a distance is that she erects these walls these barriers to protect herself from being hurt. And what's, what, what's hard to watch is, is I see Keith sitting on the couch next to her, and he, he doesn't really know what to say. You know, he's, he's a very quiet man, but he kind of reaches over to try to grab her hand, to let her know, like, I'm here. Like, I know that you're keeping me out. I know you've got a barrier, but I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm with you. And even though she is there crying and weeping and tearful, you watch the session, and she can't accept it. She can't do it. She knows what she's doing. She knows what would help heal her and them. She's weeping about it, but she is powerless to change it. She is unable to grasp that. She can't turn towards him. The veil that she had used to protect herself was the same that kept her marriage from being transformed. And I think that's the case with us. I think that's what happens when we, protect, when we erect barriers to try to protect ourselves from the Lord. And you have to wonder, why do we do that? Like, why do we do that? Why don't we just joyfully enter God's presence, expose ourselves to Him, come before Him in prayer, and open ourselves up to Him fully? Well, there's probably a few reasons for that. You know, it could be that, like the Israelites, we don't understand the depths of God's love for us. We don't get it. We don't understand the depths that God's willing to sacrifice for us. It could be that like the Israelites, we are, such, we are in such bondage to sin. We are so bound and trapped and imprisoned by it that we have no hope of movement. That we can't get close to God. You know, that's what the Bible says about us, by the way, in our natural condition. That's who we are without God living into us, without his impact on our hearts. Without Jesus' sacrifice for sin and freeing us from that bondage, we were helpless to draw near to him. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You could not do anything about it. It's not that you were sick. It's not that you were anemic. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. God had to make the first move. God had to make us able to remove the veil from our hearts and make us new creatures that could turn towards him. That's what Paul says when he says, you know, we are free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We are free now to engage and to interact and to turn towards Christ. And that's what transforms us into his, that's what transforms us into his image. He says it right here. And we all with unveiled faces, right, that, that, that veil is gone, that barrier is removed, we're no longer bound in our sin, we're free to engage with God. We with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. How do we change? We fix our eyes on the Lord. 
we draw near to him in faith. And it's tough. It's tough in a world of distractions. It's tough in a world with, you know, different pulls on our attention and, and desires for entertainment, and all of our heart's desires of what we want to make ourselves rather than what God would want to make of us. It's tough to fix our eyes on the Lord. You know, I'll never forget uh, when my youngest son was, uh, I think he was, you know, maybe two years old, and I was sitting on the couch, and, you know, I was being, you know, he was, he was trying so hard to talk to me and to get my attention. He, you know, he was explaining something to me or something that he was excited about. And, you know, I was sitting there. I, I can't remember exactly what I was doing. I was either buried in a book or I'm, you know, mindlessly flicking my, you know, this motion, right? Just flicking through my phone and, and just, you know, not paying attention. And little Asher, you know, like, he's had enough. So he climbs up onto the couch and he gets onto my lap and he takes my face in his little hands. He's like, Dad! Yes, I'm here. What if we prayed like that? What if we prayed like that? And here's, here's another way that we can fix our eyes on the Lord, you know. When you encounter God and his word, and people say this, you know, I wish God would speak to me. I wish he'd say something to me. It's like he, he wrote a book of his words to you. You know, and maybe it wasn't written directly to you, right? This was written to the Corinthians, written to, you know, the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, but it's written for you. So what if when you engage with Scripture, you read it as if it was written for you because it was? And instead of saying, you know, Father Chris was um, speaking about, you know, loving our enemies, right? What if when we read that, when we hear that, instead of keeping it in the realm of propositional knowledge and keeping a barrier between us and that, we actually took it in and did it? Something might change. Because that's the thing, when we interact with God, it's not just contemplative, it's not just in the quiet of prayer and study, but sometimes it's in action. In fact, God often meets us in the things that we're doing. This is the third way I want to talk about the way that we are transformed by fixing our gaze on God, is what are we doing? This past, um, this past week, I was um, laying sod in our yard. Um, it had been a mess, and I'd, I'd, I'm actually loving these projects. And I had, a, um, I had a, a, a giant dirt hole, and I'm trying to make the ground level, you know, and try to make it good. And um, my, my older son, Gabriel, he's five now. He comes out, and he's got his little shovel that I bought for him, you know. And, and he's like, Dad, what you doing? I'm like, you know, I'm fixing the yard. He's like, all right, I want to do it too. I'm like, this is great. Work ethic. Here we go. You know, and then a few minutes goes by. He's like, all right, Dad, I'm done. Buddy, how about, how about I give you a coin? For 10 minutes. Now, I didn't specify what type, right? He doesn't know. I mean, I can get, I can get, I can get away with some cheap labor here. But, um, you know, but, 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 you know, and he picks up a shovel and he gets moving and he works and we're working alongside each other on the same project together. Now, you tell me that as we, as we spend time together, as we continue to work together, that he won't become more like me, hopefully the good parts, right? I mean, Paul writes this about our relationship with God. He says, and it's unreal. We are God's fellow workers working in his field. Why does God need us to be his fellow workers? You know, my son Gabriel, it would have taken me one shovel scoop to do what he did in 10 minutes. In fact, it did. You know, the hole didn't really get full, so I, you know, did that, and boom, we're done. It's even. But that wasn't the point, was it? It's not the point. The point is the bonding and the transformation that comes with that. And so, Christians, let me encourage you. As you look at the full glory of God, as you seek to fix your gaze on him, to come into proximity with him, see if that doesn't transform you. See if that doesn't change you to your very core. See if that doesn't degree by degree shape you into his image. It will. 
Now notice what Paul says, though. It's, it's a slow change. You know, we're in a world of instant gratification, and, you know, I won't cook anything that doesn't have a microwave attached to it or whatever. You know, it's like we want a quick change. We want it now, but that's not how Paul says it happens. He says, as we engage with the Lord, as we fix ourselves upon Him, as we behold His unveiled face, how do we change? From one degree of glory to another, right? You all remember the protractors that we had in school? You ever use those, you know? And, um, and what, what you learn about using protractors, which is really cool, it's got all little degrees on there, is as you draw a line out, and as you continue to extend that line, one degree can make a lot of difference, can it? Draw that line out long enough, and you have a significant difference, significant change. So think about that as you engage with God over the course of your life, over the course of whatever years we all have left. What can God do in you as you fix yourselves on Him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to fix our aim, to fix our goal, to fix our ambition, and to put our eyes on you. God, we have fickle hearts. Our desires are weak. What we want for ourselves is far less than what you would want for us. but you are willing to give us yourself and to shape us and to change us after your own likeness. God, I pray that we look at you with confidence and expectation, desiring that you would work on our hearts more than we could ever do for ourselves. It's your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.